audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our text this morning comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to read verses 8 uh, through 15. And it reads this way. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered, uh, scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come with the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded, uh, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept, the Lord, uh, kept what the Lord had commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Always good to see you. Um, obviously picking back up for Samuel 13 for this morning. Uh, we are, we'll be mostly completed with 1 Samuel by the end of May. And we'll take a little break in June and July. In June, we're going to spend some time preaching through the, the concept, the theme of God as shepherd and what that means uh, for us as sheep, for him as our shepherd, but also what that means for our identity corporately as a body as well with God as our shepherd and us leaders as under shepherds of the flock. So we're going to be unpacking that. July, we're going to have a five-week sermon series on worship what worship is, why we worship, why God deserves it, what it means to be a worshiping people. And that fifth Sunday of that sermon series, uh, our kids are going to lead us in worship. They're going to start kids' choir here in about six weeks, and they'll be singing, uh, practicing for that day on July 30th is the actual day, which I'm excited about. And then we're also going to have something else planned for kids and their parents that day, which I'll tell you more later, um, leave you in suspense a little bit. Um, but we're almost halfway through. First uh, Samuel. And I thought before we get into our text this morning, it may be appropriate just to kind of summarize where we've been. We've been in here for almost 10 weeks now. And so I want us to just kind of get on the same page. Maybe you're newer with us. Maybe you missed a couple of weeks. But how did we get here to First Samuel 13 in this really pivotal moment uh, for Israel? So we've been tracking, if you remember, the life of Samuel even before he was born with the life of Hannah back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah, unable to have children, she prays the Lord gives her, that the Lord gives her a son. She vows that if God grants her request, she will take the son back and give him into the service of the Lord all of his days. And God transforms her life. He gives her a son. He, she fulfills her vow to him. When Samuel's a boy, he's living in the house of Eli, the priest, with his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are serving as priests as well at the time. 
And the Lord speaks to Samuel in the darkness in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and tells him to relay a message to Eli that the Lord is about to punish his family for their wickedness as leaders in Israel and remove them from those positions of leadership. Sure enough, the Lord does just that. Eli and his two sons, they die on the same day um, as a result of this battle with the Philistines in chapters 4, 5, and 6. The ark of God is taken by the Philistines. Israel is taken captive by the Philistines as well, and they are in captivity for close to 40 years under the Philistine rule. But in the midst of this captivity, Samuel, this new judge of Israel, he calls the people back to the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And they respond. They repent of their sin. They lament over their sin. They come back to the Lord. But then in chapter 8, <laughs> they forget. They move into rebellion again, demanding a king like all the other nations. They desire that to essentially remove Yahweh as their king, as their God, and set up a, a man-made, a man-centered king on the throne of Israel. God grants their request. He says, hey, you want that? You can have it even though he knows it's going to lead to disaster for the people in the long run. The Lord knows the kings they appoint will be takers, consumers of the people, and consumers of all that the people have, but the people want a king anyway. So they get it. Saul's anointed king. By the end of chapter 12, Samuel has turned over leadership to this new king, to Saul. And here we stand at the beginning of chapter 13, our text for this morning. And it's, it's honestly a crucial turning point in the narrative of 1 Samuel in the history of Israel as a nation. That's okay. Um, sorry, I got distracted by the ambulance. Their first physical king now sits on the throne, and the people await his leadership over them. And it's hard to understate the significance of this period of Israel's history. You know, since God called Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, almost a thousand years have passed. For the entirety of that thousand years, Israel has been a theocracy. You know, Yahweh has been their king. He has ruled them in that way. And for the first time in their existence as a nation, they now have a different king. They're now a monarchy. They move from theocracy to monarchy. But as we saw last week, you know, if you were with us on Easter, even in spite of this wicked request from the people of Israel, there's mercy and grace afforded to them, even in this request. For if the king and the people continue to pursue Yahweh, continue to walk in the commandments of the Lord, they could continue to flourish as a people, even though they had an earthly king over them now. For that king and the people would ultimately be submitting to God as their king, Right? So as readers of this narrative, if we're reading through this narrative, when we enter into chapter 13, we're entering in with anticipation and trepidation on what kind of king Saul would be. Would he be an obedient king? Would he be a godly ruler, a leader who led his people into further obedience and adherence to God's commands? Or would he be a tyrant? Would he be like those kings described in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the takers? Would he rule with an iron fist? Would he lead the people into further idolatry and disobedience? You know, maybe a similar uh, expectation you may have when you, uh, we elect new leaders of our country. I'm pretty cynical at this point. My hopes are not very high ever um, when it comes to politics. Maybe yours are. Um, just live a little longer and uh, you will understand um, why I'm cynical. But think back to April 30th, 1789. You know, America had just gained independence from England six years earlier. 
And they were inaugurating their first president, General George Washington. April 30th, 1789. It was a new era. It was a new day for a country, a new country. It was the first time this democratic ideal of government was practiced in the history of the world. It wasn't a monarchy anymore. It was a democratic republic. What kind of leader would Washington be? Would he be like King George? Would he eventually love the power of his new position and establish the Washington line to rule in perpetuity throughout the ages? Would he rule in strength and dominance? Would this idea of a separation of powers and branches of government and checks and balances, would it all just crumble and fail? Or was this truly a new day with new hope for the American people? You know, I know America is not Israel in any shape or form. I'm not saying that. I only use this illustration to give an example of the magnitude of this transition that's happening here at the cusp of chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And potentially the questions the people would be asking may be questions people in America were asking back in 1789 here. But as we'll quickly see, Saul is a colossal failure. And it only takes two years into his 40-year reign as king to exhibit his ineptitude for the task at hand. So let's dive into our text. Read with me. We didn't read this out loud, but read with me now, verses 1 through 7. Kind of set the scene here for us. Starting in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were there with Jonathan and Gibeah Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew his trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Saul had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard, they were, the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. If you remember back a couple of weeks, chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel told Saul to head down to Gilgal and wait for him seven days. In seven days, Saul would, or Samuel would come and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord on behalf of the people and give Saul some next steps to follow. So chapter 10, verse 9, all the way to chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 13, encompasses these seven days that Samuel makes his way to Gilgal to wait. Um, Saul makes his way to Gilgal to wait on Samuel. And somewhere in that seven days, Saul begins to amass a bodyguard. Now of all the soldiers of Israel, he sets aside 2,000 to follow him, be his protection. He gives 1,000 to his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan takes his thousand troops, and he defeats a Philistine military outpost in Geba, a victory being hailed throughout Israel to Saul's military glory, which may be an indicator that Saul's already beginning to take, because he didn't defeat the Philistines. Jonathan did. 
And this enrages the Philistines, makes them mad. That phrase, they became a stench, Israel became a stench to the Philistines, is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament to describe inflamed passions that drive somebody to retaliation. So they're real upset. So they look to retaliate. They amass literally the biggest military force up to this point in the Old Testament and come up against the Israelite troops in battle. The Israelite troops, they quickly realize they are outnumbered, outmatched, pressed on all sides. They start to run away. Some hide in nooks and crannies and rocks and caves. Some literally leave the promised land altogether. We're getting the heck out of here. We're crossing the Jordan. We're gone. Getting out of Dodge. And they are terrified. They are scared to death. And the irony of all of this, the irony of all of this is the people wanted a king to fight their battles. Right? They wanted a king to go out before them and lead them to victory. But here, in Saul's first attempt to disrupt the Philistine occupation, he is embarrassingly defeated. He is crushed. His 2,000 elite troops, they are scared to death. They are trembling. These elite men are trembling at the might of the Philistines. And Saul has a choice to make here. You know, he was instructed by Samuel to head to Gilgal and to wait for Samuel to come and offer these sacrifices to entreat God's favor upon the nation, upon the armies of Israel. So in verse 8, the writer starts to address this. Let's reread verses 8 through 15. So Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, listen to the language, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up to Gilgal from Gibeah of Benjamin. So this is where I want to spend most of our time, really the remainder of our time this morning. You know, verses 16 to 23, we're going to see those next week as they kind of propel us into chapter 14. So we're going to save those for this week. But Saul's response here in this desperate situation can instruct us in how we're to respond. God is using a negative example of Saul's response to teach us how rightly to respond in desperate situations, when things are outside of our control, situations we didn't plan upon, where we feel surrounded by enemies on every side. And the first thing we learn from Saul's tragic actions is this. Partial obedience to God's commands is still full disobedience. Partial obedience to God's commands is still full disobedience. In verses 8 and 9, Saul is waiting on Samuel to come. 
Day one passes, day two passes, days three, four, and five, six, they all pass. Troops are leaving in mass. I mean, this is like, literally like, what's the word I'm looking for? And they, a mutiny, a mutiny. That's the word I'm looking for. They're leaving. The massive Philistine army is closing in as Saul's troops are fleeing. Still no Samuel. Day seven comes. Sacrifices in Israel are usually offered twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. We can presume Samuel misses the morning sacrifice. So Saul's freaking out. You know, I don't know what's going through his mind at this point. Maybe he's delayed. Maybe he got hung up. Maybe he's dead. I mean, he's old. Maybe he just died. Maybe he's not here. Who knows what he's thinking? But whatever he is thinking, it drives him to make the first of many blunders that will cost him and his family the throne in Israel. Things are falling apart all around him, and he decides to take matters into his own hands. And in verse 9, presumably during the evening sacrifice on the seventh day, Samuel's still not quite there yet, Saul demands the animals for the burnt offerings and the animals for the peace offerings be brought to him, and he sacrifices the burnt offering himself. You know, the Torah, the law of God, is very clear that the sacrifices made in Israel were to only be made by priests. That the holy things were only to be handled by priests. The intercession before God was only to be made by priests. And here we have a non-priest, a king, offering up something to God he was not authorized to offer. Saul obeyed the word of the Lord through Samuel in that he went to Gilgal. He's in Gilgal. He obeyed it. But he didn't obey the word to wait on Samuel took matters into his own hands, thus, as we're going to see momentarily, disqualifying himself to be Israel's king. Saul partially obeyed, but he was still fully guilty of disobeying the commands of God. This is Saul's first trial as king. The Lord was testing his confidence in and obedience to his word. When pressed on all sides, when things were completely falling apart, when there were no options left on the table, would Saul continue to believe God's word and his promises that Samuel was coming, that aid was coming, that deliverance was coming, that God would always fulfill his word and his promises? The Lord oftentimes allows tests to come into our lives to expose, whether for good or for bad, our own hearts, where we are in our trust and our faith of God. Oftentimes in those periods of testing, the temptation to compromise is always present. Now, surely God didn't mean that. Or surely he would be okay if I just did this. I mean, I was obedient over here, If I just cut this corner or took this glance or clicked that button or held back that money, surely it would be all right because I've stored up some obedience over here. Now think about the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not make an oath, do not retaliate. You know, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jewish Torah had been reduced down, in essence, to external actions that justified you, divorce from your heart. And Jesus says, no, no, full obedience doesn't just include your external actions. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. 
You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at lust, another woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Full obedience involves the whole person. It involves the heart and the mind and the actions of that person. And Jesus wants it all. He wants it all. Not just partially, but he wants it all. And so we, as the people of God, must take stock in why we do what we do. Do you just show up every week? Show up out of duty because this is what you're supposed to do and your heart is just not in it. Do you serve regardless of where your heart is? I mean, what, whatever you do in the body of Christ, why are you doing it? Why? Is it to show externally your obedience to God? Or is it coupled internally with your heart to show a full obedience to the Lord, not simply partial obedience to his commands? But what God desires in the middle of desperate situations is the fullness of our obedience, which leads to the second point, kind of an undergirding point of this. God desires faith-filled hearts, not pragmatic quick fixes. God desires faith-filled hearts, not pragmatic quick fixes. You know, in the midst of those times that test our faith, that test our trust in God's word and in his promises, oftentimes in our individual lives and in our churches, the first question that we're seeking to answer is what works best? You know, what makes the most sense in this situation? And that's not, those aren't bad questions in and of themselves, but maybe not the best questions to start with when we're trying to follow Jesus. You know, those questions oftentimes lead to quick fixes that are not rooted in God's word, but in pleasing the most people the quickest. You know, someone who's considered a pragmatist, let me define that for you. Someone who's considered a pragmatist, they hold in a philosophy that a true idea is one that works. That the right course of action is deemed right if it brings the sought-after results. But it's not difficult to see how this philosophy can present a plethora of ethical issues, right? If lying helps me achieve my desired ends, helps me to get ahead, does that make lying right? If cheating helps me get ahead and accomplish my desired ends, does that make cheating right? It might be the most pragmatic you know, solution to achieve my goals, but does that make it right? And the answer obviously is no. I mean, think about myself, uh, um, when Christine comes to me with an issue or a problem, me being the husband, the man, I just want to fix it, right? I'm thinking very pragmatically, how do I fix this so that this is no longer a problem? Maybe some of you men understand that too. I don't know. Maybe I'm all alone up here. doesn't matter. But that's my approach. Rather than what does my wife need? What does she need for me in that moment? What would help her? Uh, work through her issue and not have me just come fix it. That takes more time, takes more effort, takes more intentionality. It's harder. Or even think about our church. And church is really just in uh, our context, cultural context today. You know, the solutions or ideas presented oftentimes are undergirded less by theological considerations and framework and more by what we can do to draw the most people or entertain the biggest crowds, or drive up the biggest numbers, or produce the most money. Very little questions are asked like, what does this communicate about our identity as God's people? 
Or does this strengthen us as God's people? Or what does this communicate about our God? Rather than, the, rather than those questions, the driving question is again, what works best to achieve our desired ends? It's ministry rooted in pragmatism. Let me give an example. I think that our, uh, I think about our approach to having kids in the worship gathering with us. You know, five and up, if you're new to us, new to Manual Church, kids five and up sit with us in the worship gathering. They sit with families. Families try to sit together. It's a huge conviction of ours as a church. It was a conviction of ours before I even got here. It's been a conviction since day one of our church that families sit together when they reach a certain age, that we, we really desire our families, our parents, to disciple their children, to lead out and raising up their children to fear the Lord and to trust Him. Now, Lifeway did a study in 2019 which polled college students who grew up in the Christian faith Asked them two questions. Are you still in the faith? And if you are, why did you stay? And two of the biggest reasons why these college students who were still walking with Jesus said they stayed in the faith was they watched their parents worship and they watched their parents confess sin. Two reasons, overarching reasons. They watched their parents worship the living God and they saw their parents confess their shortcomings. So for us, We think not having kids in the room communicates something we don't want to be as a people. So we have them. We desire for parents to be actively engaged in the worship gathering with their children, leading out with their children. Can this be disruptive? Of course it can be. Can this be distracting? Of course it can be, no doubt. But those are risks and costs we're willing to pay to take to, for the sake of discipling our kids to love the Lord and to love his people. You know, the results we seek as a body here at Emmanuel Church are generational results. We want to see generations of Christ followers, not simply uninterrupted worship gatherings for their parents. Now hear me when I say that and what I'm about to say. Is children's programming during services wrong? No, of course not. Are you a bad person if you choose one day to attend a church where there's children's programming during the worship service? No, you're not. I'd love to talk to you, but I don't think you're a bad person. But this is an area at Emmanuel Church that we will most likely never pursue pragmatic solutions to. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Since the inception of Emmanuel Church and in churches we've been a part of before, we know people who have migrated to other churches in the city looking for stuff for their kids during the worship gathering. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if we're concerned as a church in driving up our numbers, if we're concerned as a church at keeping distractions low, if we're concerned as a church on having enough money in the budget, if those are our primary concerns, then when we start to freak out like Saul, watching all his troops leave, watching all his armies leave, if we start to see people leaving our body and start to freak out and make decisions out of fear and anxiety, we are offering pragmatic solutions to a spiritual problem. But that's not our approach. Our approach here, hopefully in all regards, but particularly in this regard, is a convictional one. It's a theological one. We believe biblically that it's important for our kids to be in the gathering with their families. And this drives us to make decisions around the family worship worship and and worship gatherings with families. 
We desire decisions made by our body to be theologically and biblically informed, not simply made to please the masses or our own man-made ends. It's bigger than that. You know, Saul thought offering up the sacrifices with little consideration on the theological framework on who should be doing that, on the law of the Lord, with little consideration on the ethical demands of the Torah, the long-term consequences of what he's doing. He offers up these sacrifices because he thought they would help him achieve his desired ends, namely favor with God and victory over the Philistines. So he let pragmatism drive him to compromise his obedience to God's law and to compromise the commands for which God had given him in order to do what made most sense to him. Saul's solution is, well, we haven't offered the sacrifices yet. It makes sense to do it. Bring them to me. Surely God will grant us favor regardless of who offers them up. Seems to work best given our desperate situation, but it wasn't what worked best. You know, we don't even get to the peace offering. If you read the text, you can get to the peace offering because there is no peace when he offers up sacrifices outside of God's commands. Samuel shows up. He's like, what are you doing? And Samuel then tells Saul, God, through Samuel, tells Saul, you forfeited your throne. Which leads to our last major point here. God always seeks those in step with his own heart. God always seeks those in step with his own heart. Verses 13 to 15, Samuel tells Saul that God's looking for another person to fill his throne, someone after his own heart. We realize two things in this dialogue between Saul and Samuel that we just read. And the first is this, that we see that sin always carries with it short-term and long-term consequences. Short-term and long-term. Now, for Saul, consequences in the short-term are that God is looking for somebody else to occupy the throne. It's a short-term consequence. God's eyes are looking out on someone after his own heart. Long-term consequences, Saul's family line is severed forever from ruling on the throne of Israel. It's a generational impact through Saul's decision here to not follow the commands of the Lord. Now, our sins today, church, our sins today most likely carry with them consequences tomorrow and months from now and potentially years from now. The generational cycles of sin are very real. Some of us in this room, and I put myself in this category as well, we have dispositions to certain areas of sin because our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents engaged in those sins and taught their kids to do the same. Addiction, poor decisions with money, abuse, prejudice against certain groups of people. Many of these sins we find in ourselves were rooted in one, two, three generations before us that still manifest themselves in our lives. But in Samuel's condemnation of Saul's actions, he also says that the Lord is looking for one who's in step with the heart of God. Now, the fact that God is looking implies there's someone to be found, right? You know, God would eventually find David. We're going to get to in a few chapters, a man after his own heart. Chapter 16, Acts 13, 22 says that as well, that David was a man after God's own heart, even when he failed, which we're going to see as well. And for a time thereafter, David, after he dies, it doesn't look like there's anybody that meets the criteria of what God is looking for. I mean, the psalmist would write in Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Paul would pick it up 
in Romans chapter 3, and they would say, there's no one righteous. Not even one. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. But God would eventually send His own righteous man, His own man after His own heart, for Jesus would be fully God and fully man, possessing the heart of His Father, His eternal Father, yet the heart of a fleshly human as well. Jesus would be the fulfillment of someone after God's own heart. He would be everything that David and Saul were intended to be. And when Jesus would begin saving a people, the Holy Spirit would take those people's hearts of stone and he'd give them new hearts of flesh. Hearts that were filled with new desires and new passions and new motives were now, because of those new hearts we have by grace through faith in Jesus, God can look to and fro upon the earth and find many with hearts after his own. For they're filled with the heart of Christ. But what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Well, very quickly as we close, very quickly, three things this kind of person is that God seeks. First, it's someone who has love for his word. Someone who loves his word. You know, Saul disregarded the word of the Lord. So God was looking for somebody else different that would have regard for his word. He sought to do things his own way. Saul did according to what he thought was best, but the Lord seeks lovers of his word, of his glory. You know, if we truly love the Lord, we'll desire to hear from the Lord. You know, if you truly love somebody in this world, if you truly delight in somebody's presence and you want to grow in knowledge of that person, whether it be a close friend or a spouse or a parent, if you truly love them, you seek a relationship with that person, Right? You seek to be, uh, to hear from that person, to have conversation with that person, to know that person, to have conversation back and forth with that person, to say we love God yet have a disregard for the primary way he speaks to us, his word, is an, kind of an oxymoron. He may desire to know us, but we have very little desire to know him when we refrain from his word. For you can't truly love someone you barely know someone you aren't actively pursuing a relationship with. And God's looking for those who have hearts for his word and desire to live by his word. Second, to be after God's own heart is truly, uh, to be truly grieved over sin. Someone who truly grieves over their sin. Saul didn't grieve over his sin. He passed off responsibility for his sin. My troops are leaving. You weren't here. The Philistines are gathering all around us. Gives three reasons why he sought to offer these sacrifices. He never said, I messed up. Not one time. He never sought repentance from the Lord. You know, eventually when David falls into sin, which we'll see, he remains a man after God's own heart when he truly expresses contrition and grief and repentance for his sins. Read Psalm 51. To be after God's own heart doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're perfect but it does mean you take sin seriously, that you confess sin regularly. You know, to express true contrition and desire to change when we find ourselves falling back into these old sins and patterns, that is a person seeking after the heart of God, striving after holiness and hating those parts of us that are slower in their sanctification. I mean, what is your approach to sin? And do you try to justify it? It's easy sometimes to justify our sin. It's tempting to do that. 
You take responsibility for your actions when you do fail. You fall. You feel contrition in your heart, desire to change from those sin patterns that keep popping up. And if, if you do, who knows about those sin patterns that keep popping up? Does anybody? I mean, it doesn't have to be some crazy, huge sin you keep falling into. It could be something as simple as gossip, slander. It's tax season. It could be cheating on your taxes. That's pretty big. Cheating on your taxes. <laughs> Whatever. Do people know you? Do they know your struggles? Do they know your shortcomings? Do they know your desire to change? Or is your sin still hidden in the dark, just eating you alive? with secret guilt and with secret shame and with secret lies. You know, to be someone after God's own heart is to truly grieve over our sin. And then lastly here, lastly, a person after God's own heart is someone who seeks the Lord according to the Lord's ways. Spiritual ends are only ever achieved by spiritual means. If we want God to move in this body, We want God to change lives. It's not always to offer more pragmatic solutions, more events, more things to do, more cool things to be part of. It's to pray and to fast. Because spiritual ends are only accomplished by spiritual means. There are no quick fixes to holiness There's no quick fix to spiritual maturity. Eugene Peterson, I've quoted this a million times. I'll quote it a million more. Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. You can't microwave it. You can't Instapot it. Slow cooker. I'm hungry. Um, (laughs) Made me think about Cody's hams he smoked for Easter last Sunday. I'm like, that's how Christian maturity happens. A a A smoker over time, right? Spiritual maturity does not happen quickly. It doesn't happen instantly. The pragmatic approach looks for instant results. But faith that lasts through this life and into eternity, faith that is passed down to your children and their children and their children that lasts for eternity, cannot be forged in the fires of pragmatism and quick fixes. Faith that lasts is a day-to-day steadfastness and waiting and expectation that God is shaping you daily more and more into the image of his son. And you keep going. And you keep forging ahead. Even if it feels like you are crawling, you keep going forward, trusting that God is working in you even when you don't see it in yourself. I pray, church, I pray that we will be a body of believers made up of individuals after God's own heart. That we'll be known to possess the qualities of Jesus and how we love one another and how we engage God's mission in this world. And we need each other. We need each other to do it so we can't make it on our own. We need some people to carry us sometimes, carry us forward, pushing ahead. So may we rejoice with one another in times of plenty, times of flourishing, but also in times of hardship and suffering. For God's glory, let's pray together.
Father, have mercy on me when I try to accomplish spiritual ends without spiritual means. Have mercy on me in those weeks where I've gotten up to stand in this pulpit and I've neglected prayer and I've neglected fasting and I've neglected meditation on your word and I've neglected all these means you give to accomplish the desired ends that we have and that's salvation and growth in Christ. Forgive me when I put more stock in my sermon than I do falling on my face and pleading with you to intervene. Have mercy on us as a church. Anytime we slip into quick fixes and anytime we become more event planners than interceders for people. Father, we love you and we truly desire truly desire for your glory and your renown to be the desire of our souls. So I pray, oh God, I pray for us as a people that us and our families and our marriages and our individual lives in this body will not seek the easy answers, that will not seek the easy fixes, that we won't seek to put bandages on bullet holes. Lord, we will truly, truly seek your will, even regardless of what it costs us. We thank you for Jesus, the ultimate example that a quick fix won't do it, but a costly sacrifice is what was required. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus Christ's name.